Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jenikin. Let's start out the show by thanking our lovely contributors of our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. We had Henrietta, Robin, Margie, Mark, Michael, Katie, and Lushy. Thanks, Lushy. <laughs> Lushy's a lush. <laughs> um, I love that name. Yeah. It's good. Uh, and thank you, everyone else, not named Lushy as well. Yeah. We love you all. We do. Sorry. It's like it's like we're recording in the morning. We're a little... Uh, Desi's not feeling... What's going on? I don't know. I've not just to been get under, personal. I've but. been under the weather for a few days. I think I'm just tired. Yeah. But it's just that season where you're kind of always low-grade sick. Totally. So it's just sort of like, uh, I'm gonna, two more months of this, I guess. Yeah. So, totally. You know, I, I'll, I'll pull through. <laughs> I, I hear we have a very exciting story today. Uh, yeah, it's really interesting, and I didn't know a lot about it. And I recently saw that it was the 15th anniversary of the death of metal icon Dimebag Daryl. Do you know about this story a little bit? I honestly don't. Okay, so then it's all going to be new to you. You're about to get a schooled in metal. Thanks, Desi. <laughs> so I figured it was a good time to look into this story, which is really sad uh, and terrible. I read more metal Reddit boards than I ever have in my fucking life. Uh, first of all, I can't even imagine what kind of <laughs> discourse is going on on a metal Reddit it's a board. Lot of, it's a lot of discourse. <laughs> These... These are passionate fans, Rachel, and it and in a lot of their minds, it's still 1982. You know what? Good <laughs> and for I them. love it. Good so it was definitely a, 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 an experience. You know, when you're a recovering alcoholic in Los Angeles, <laughs> you you get to meet a lot of people for whom whom them it is still 1982. I literally like one of my favorite things in LA is seeing someone like that during the day. It's like the best. they'll just be like. Buying Fruit Loops at Target <laughs> or whatever, living Honestly, their lives, and you're God, like, I love it. God bless aging metalheads. <laughs> They're amazing. Yeah. So, in addition to the Reddit boards and like the news, old newspaper articles, I also had um, an interview from, or not an interview, but Rolling Stone did a story about this uh, tragedy by Peter Wilkinson, and it was pretty detailed and came out right after uh, the event. And then there was another um, interview I, I I took from. It was with uh, Dimebag's brother, Vinny, who's also in the band, and that was at loudersound.com. Now, what is the band? (laughs) Pantera. Okay. You don't know Pantera? No, I just, for our (laughs) listeners. Well, I'm going to get into it. Okay. Yeah. So, anyway, Dimebag Daryl was born Daryl Lance Abbott in Ennis, Texas on August 20th, 1966 to Carol and Jerry Abbott. He had an older brother that I just mentioned named Vinnie Paul. Jerry Abbott was actually a big country music producer. So music was a big part of the boys' lives pretty much from the beginning. And their parents supported the boys' interest in pursuing a career in music pretty much like solidly. Like they had like a really great home life um, by all accounts. Now, in this interview with Vinnie Paul, um, he talks about sort of how they both started getting into music and how they eventually really bonded. Like they had a super close brother bond, like to the end. So in this interview, he says, it's kind of the old Eddie and Alex Van Halen story. We both started playing drums when I was 14 and he was two years younger than me. I just got better than him and he wouldn't play them anymore. So he told our dad, I got to have an instrument to play. Get me a guitar. I would go past his room and he'd be standing in front of the mirror with his Ace Freely makeup on holding his guitar. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'd say, man, are you ever going to learn to play that thing? A month later, he asked me to jam. He hooked up and he had this little amp and his replica of a Les Paul that Ace Freely used to play. Ace was a major influence when he was a kid. <laughs> Whenever it's a boy of a certain age in this era, like they're all obsessed with Kiss. Kiss is like it at that time at that, for that age. For that age group. Yeah. It was like everything. So apparently he started riffing Smoke on the Water. <laughs> classic. Oh a classic early guitar jam. You got to do it. Fuck. Um, according to Vinny, we played it for like six hours. <laughs> Once we started on music, we were inseparable. We thrived on music and learned as much as we could and couldn't wait to get together to play. So that's pretty cute to think of these little boys playing Smoke They're on the Water. Along. Yeah. So Abbott's parents divorced in 1979, uh, but as I said, the family kind of remained close and were pretty much a happy family. At the age of 14, Dimebag started entering guitar contests at the Agora Ballroom in Dallas, which was owned by Dean Zelensky, who founded Dean Guitars, and he was also one of the judges. The mom would take him to these um, contests at this club because he wasn't old enough to go in by himself, and he would win the competitions. In fact, he was so good that they eventually asked him not to compete anymore. And he became a judge at like the age of 14. Uh, Yeah. So he was like kind of a prodigy. Now in 1981, uh, Pantera was formed. Vinny was 1981. Yeah. Okay. Vinny was asked to join the band with some high school friends, uh, Terry Glaze, Tom Bradford and Donnie Hart. He said that he would only be in the band if they let his brother, Daryl join the band as well. Now, he's like 16 at this time. So these guys are like, (laughs) I mean, they're 18, but you know, that's like a world of difference back then, right? So they're kind of like, fuck that. He's not that good. He's skinny and scrawny, like this little fucking wimp kid. So they didn't initially want it, but they really wanted Vinny. So they finally agreed. Now, I mentioned I was on these Reddit boards. A lot of the Reddit boards are devoted to whether or not Dimebag Daryl is good or not, or like what his sound was. You know what I mean? Is he overrated or whatever? And like I said before, I genuinely love these metal nerds. (laughs) Like they go into such depth about his sound. I couldn't even like comprehend it. It was like reading quantum physics or something. Well, there's like, I feel like there's a strong correlation between like people who are good at math and like metal. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's something kind of there's something kind of nerdy about metal in a weird way. I know it's like a very technical skill, especially to play like metal guitar. I'm sure the drums too as well. But like, right. look, I'm, I know I'm sounding like a fucking <laughs> moron, but I but feel there like... Is sort of like this technical aspect to it. It's a very technical right. musical skill to play certain um, kinds of metal. Absolutely. So the band kind of rearranges itself... Um, they kind of replace the lead singer. Rex Brown takes over the bassist. So they're just, you know, whatever. Typical early days of a band. Things are moving around. By this point, they're really into Dimebag. And uh, he initially had shared lead guitar, but now he's like the lead guitarist. They were yeah. like, okay, he's fucking good. Glaze said about him, he just morphed over a six-month period. When he came out, he could play like Eruption and Crazy Train. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> they were like big into like Black Sabbath and like Judas Priest as well. Like So... He takes the name Diamond Daryl initially. Uh, he said it was a reference to the Kiss song Black Diamond. Wasn't David Lee Roth's nickname Diamond? Diamond Dave. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. I guess that's the thing. They all love Kiss. Now, they're uh, originally like a glam metal band, oh. Pantera. Um, 
So they're coming off of, like I said, this kiss, uh, you know, that sort of late seventies, um, metal era. And they like, look it too. They wear spandex, they have makeup on and hairspray. So they're kind of like glam hair, hair metal hybrid type thing, like in the early eighties. Now they signed with metal magic records, um, and they released their first album, Metal Magic, in 1983 uh, when uh, Dimebag was 16. So they kind of get good reviews from the start, in particular about Dimebag's solos. Like people really dig his uh, stuff. This is like a classic metal nerd quote from one of the early reviews. Like I could barely understand it, but I'll read it for you. <laughs> Um, whereas most solos tend to be asymmetrical and that the old theory of musical thought consisting of statements alternating with appropriate responses is ignored and replaced by an authoritative delivery of the player's own concept of what should happen. What? So I think they're talking about some kind of thing that's like a call and response that's like a, had a symmetry and Dimebag kind of went off on his own thing and had more of an asymmetrical style to things. Look, you but lost yeah, me. It's a lot. So that goes out to all the metal nerds out there. <laughs> now, then they released Projects in the Jungle and I Am the Night, and all of these are doing pretty well. They continue to go in that glam metal style, um, and people compare them kind of to the Shout at the Devil era, Motley Crue sound. That's right. kind of what they're doing at this point. Um, but they do kind of get progressive, progressively heavier. Um, around this time, the Abbott brothers really start getting into Metallica and Slayer, which are definitely like harder metal bands at that time. And they wanted to leave Glam behind and definitely go into that heavier direction. Glaze, the lead singer, did not want to. So he left in 1986 and was replaced by Phil and Selmo. Now, at this point, they signed with Gold Mountain Records um, and re- uh, who kind of was like a management record label, but they wanted to push them into like a Bon Jovi type deal, oh. which obviously these guys were like, fuck that shit. <laughs> they were not into that at all. Um, but they definitely changed their uh, style at this point, And they do more um, like speedy metal riffs and like a really heavy guitar sound, which is definitely not like that pop hair metal type stuff that no. was going on during the 80s. The, the bassist Rex Brown says in an interview, Daryl had always been chunking those riffs out from the start, but now with Phil in the band, we got a chance to make those riffs fully happen instead of having some, this is him, gay singer over the top of them. So I guess they got like a harder, like Phil had that more like, whoa, whoa, like that low, and they were like dismissive of their glam metal. Um, excuse me. <laughs> Rob Halford is a gay singer. Uh, look. And he's pretty hard. He's hard. But was he out then? I mean, I this know. is like 80s metal scene. They're just awful in a way yeah. as far as that stuff goes. So at this point, he's such a like sort of in-demand guitar player. Like his sound is really unique. Um, Dave Mustaine asked him to join Megadeth. Uh, he kind of does a similar thing that his brother did initially. And he's like, I'm not going unless you hire my brother. Dave's like, nah. And Daryl stays with Pantera. And they continue to refine this new sound that would become known as groove metal. Groove metal. Yeah. I listen to a lot of Pantera. Wait, wait, wait. wait. You listen or you listen to? I did not listen to Pantera growing up. But but the past few days, I was like, what's groove metal like? And I know enough about metal like I'm not like an expert, but I grew up in like headbanger ball era. Like, yeah. So I know metal for sure, but probably like more of the pop stuff. Yeah. So the best I can describe it is that it's really hard, but it's not fast. Like it has kind of like a sound that's almost like I'm, I know that people are going to come after me for this, but it had like a little bit of a red hot chili pepper <laughs> vibe <laughs> as far as having like a funk undertone, but it's fucking metal. Like, 
I right. can't describe it. Well, I definitely probably would like that more. That I don't like when it's like the speed metal. It wasn't. It's not speed metal. It definitely has this like metal sound. No, I like know what do, you mean. Do like a like a. <laughs> I, I can't describe I, the bass, it. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, and the bass and like the guitar form together to make this one tone. I, like I can't describe it exactly, but it's definitely a different type of metal sound. This is what I want like music publications to do. Is like I don't want music writers to write reviews anymore. I want like total rubes to yeah. write about music and to be like it sounds like this dude it's true because I can understand that right I don't need some kind of theoretical explanation right like we can have which is interesting and some people want that we can still have those but I want I want reviews for dumbasses exactly that's what I want here like if you like this band you might like this like I want to know the influences or maybe yes, what I like would absolutely. be similar. Um, so in 1990, they're under new management at this point, and they released their major label debut called Cowboys from Hell. That's That comes out in 1990. Now, this was like their first album that really hits that whatever power groove, metal, groove metal sound that they've been kind of developing. Um, they also, this sound also has like, according to them, some Southern rock elements to it. Cause they were huge fans of ZZ top. Like they're from Texas. So I right. think ZZ top is from Texas. Don't at me. Uh, <laughs> this is certified gold and goes platinum in 1997. They released their second major la- label album, like literally almost the same year. Like it comes out really fast. Like they're very prolific at this point. This album is called vulgar display of power. Um, and it's like their biggest selling ev- like album ever. Um, and Selma really develops that inspired, like that hardcore shout delivery that they kind of become known for. Can you do an impression of it, Desi? It's deep. <laughs> like it's like that. Boo, boo. <laughs> I can't. It actually hurt me when I did that. It's really deep and like that kind of like shouty. Boo, boo, boo. You sound like metal <laughs> Michael McDonald when you do that. Yeah. Mama boo though. <laughs> it's like that. It's like. It kind of reminded me of like, it doesn't really remind me of this, but I saw that movie Us this weekend because it's finally on HBO. Oh, and yeah. And her voice, like the way she does her voice in that movie, like whatever, I won't go into it, but it's like, it pains me to hear it because I was like, that really probably fucked her up because it seems yeah. painful. Um, so his singing style seems like that to me. Like it's not natural, right. but he somehow managed to kind of refine this sound. Um, so... This is like, as I said before, their biggest not like album. It debuts at number 44. It stays on the charts for 79 weeks. It's ranked number 10 on Rolling Stone's list of the 100 greatest metal albums of all time. And a lot of that success is due to uh, Dar- Dimebag Daryl's guitar sounds, like his solos and the rhythm of everything is always highlighted as what's great about it. He kind of also switches his appearance at this point in a major way and kind of develops his signature look. He has like, I mean, it's such a metal look. He has like the cargo shorts and the shirt, the sleeveless shirt. Totally. But his real iconic thing is he always wears a razor blade pendant, which is an homage to Judas Priest, um, British Steel album. Mm -hmm. And then he also dyes his goatee. Like half of it is like hot pink. Yeah. So that's sort of like his signature look. At this point, he also loses the Diamond Daryl name because he's like, this doesn't like it's fit my, it's too way too glam. And that's when he takes up Dimebag Daryl instead. Now, how did he come up with Dimebag Daryl? There's a lot of uh, speculation about that. His brother said in that interview, uh, it's basically pot related. <laughs> you guys. Duh. 
there's a, I don't know what the speculation about it is because it seems quite clear to me. Uh, so the brother says, yeah, basically that's where it came from. He didn't delve into anything other than that. And the truth of the matter is the term nickel bag used to be kind of a regular thing and he just put his own twist on it. I don't know why I Wait, like... is he saying he invented dime bag? I guess, like... I no, mean, he I want no, <laughs> I like no, that he he's didn't. like... I like that he considered him putting his own twist, making it dime bag. But dime bag is what I knew. I never... I didn't know nickel bag. That's like for people That's like from the us. Depression <laughs> era. Yeah. <laughs> That's like when penny whistles and nickel bags... <laughs> Come on. <laughs> you know how it worked. Uh, anyways, the brother loves him, so I'm just going to let it pass. Uh, someone also speculates that he never accepted more than a dime bag because he didn't want to have more than that on his person, like if he was, whatever, arrested or something. I have no idea. But it's obviously based on pot. And he was chill. Like, he liked to smoke weed. Like, that was his thing. Uh, so... Um, Pantora continues to record. Pantora. Pantora. What the hell? Pantera continues to record and tour. Oh, that's how I did it. Pantora. <laughs> that would be a good name for their 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 tour. Their world tour. <laughs> Pantora. Look how smart I Wait, am. They should totally do that. Well, they're not friends anymore, Rachel. <laughs> Get into that. Okay. Um, so they have another album release called Far Beyond Driven. That kind of doesn't sell as much, but it's still pretty pretty big and it's actually described as the heaviest album ever to debut at number one so they're doing pretty good um the band kind of like you know metallica eventually kind of gets a softer sound yeah and pantera definitely rejects that they're like no fuck that we're not gonna get famous and then go down they go harder like right like that's what they're like this is what happens that's like a thing that happens with like so many rock bands is they right they do like the ballad they'll release the ballad yes they kind of get on a major label and it's like whatever it's not bad music like metallica had nothing else matters when did that come out (laughs) but like that's the song that like every non-metallica fan likes right yeah exactly like i don't like metallica but i like that what about that song silent lucidity (laughs) what is that song i think that's queen's reich look i know some metal dude that is it but there was like in the 90s every metal band had their like ballad right they're like we need our home sweet home right like what is it gonna be like right so and it was weird when these hardcore bands did it like less surprising when motley Crue did it well it's interesting some of these like you get to see Ease, more easily, like if you're not a metalhead, you can see like, oh, they have actual like musical skill, right? And they believe in this music, right? Like they're not just there for money and fame. Like they're like, we like fucking going hard. Like that's their deal. Um, uh, according to D- Dimebag, he said, "We're into topping ourselves. Most bands come out with a heavy record, then it gets lighter and lighter. You're stuck listening to the first record, wishing and dreaming. That ain't what we're about. And I think that's true. They get these fan base, and then they just kind of keep." listening to the first record like because nothing nothing that comes after tops like the original so now as they get kind of more and more successful obviously the band tensions start to rise namely with lead singer phil and selmo now there's a song from their album far beyond driven called i'm broken and that's inspired by his chronic back pain and he gets very fucked up with his chronic back pain. I think this happens to a lot of people. He begins to self-medicate for his pain with um, alcohol, painkillers, and ultimately heroin. So he basically travels on this bus by himself, getting fucked up, and he'll come on stage like 20 minutes before set. Like he does not hang with the band members. Uh, He just sort of isolates himself. In a 2014 interview with Anselmo, he says that he used to drink an entire bottle of wild turkey every night before the show. So he was going on stage 
pretty fucked up and, and in pain. During these performances at this period, he would just start ranting on stage because he's fucked up, like, right. and in pain. So regardless of whether or not his excuse was legitimate, the band was getting pissed off with him and they fucking were like, whatever. Their next album, they actually recorded all separately. They couldn't even be in the same room together. Um, once that album was released, it's called The Great Southern Trend Kill, uh, Trend Kill released on May 7th, 1996, like about two months later, Anselmo overdoses on heroin following um, a performance at the Dallas Starplex Amphitheater. He's actually declared clinically dead for four to five minutes, um, but he does recover and he actually re- performs at the band's next show in San Antonio just two days after ODing. So uh, this kind of definitely creates a bigger rift with all his other bandmates. Now, at this point, he also has a ton of side projects that he's devoting time to and prioritizing them over Pantera. So the band like goes on, starts up a tour for, you know, promoting this album. Uh, they're just like fucked up. Like at this point, they're all kind of getting fucked up, which is like just a classic. I mean, we all saw the Motley Crue <laughs> or most of us saw the Motley Crue movie or read the book. It's just like on the road, getting more and more fucking drunk and like fighting more, that kind of classic um, thing. Uh, Getting Phil to like go to the studio and work on music is like pulling teeth. They can't like fucking get him involved in the band anymore. During this period, um, the brother's mom, Carolyn, was diagnosed with lung cancer and she dies on September 12th, 1999. And this fucks them up even further because they were really close to their mom. Um, they're continuing to tour and record. And then obviously September 11th rolls around and they kind of canceled the tour and return to Texas where they all agreed that they're going to take a break from the band temporarily. The brothers think, oh, we're going to regroup in 2003. Pantera will be back. But the other band members move on basically. So the brothers are kind of upset, especially Daryl. And needless to say, Pantera fans are fucking devastated that this band is done. Abbott is really down about Pantera. Like, it was literally his life. Which one's Abbott? I'm sorry, uh, Dimebag. Sorry. Dimebag Daryl was really down, oh, even more than his brother, about the separation of Pantera. He felt like he had worked his whole life and that it had all been just ripped out from under him. They really couldn't continue Pantera without Phil and Selmo because it would be like a huge legal battle to kind of take the reins of con- like the name and like have the catalog. Right. So there really was nothing they could do as far as like continuing on with the Pantera brand. They'd have to go under like a new name. Yeah, so they basically start a new band. Um, the band was originally going to be called Newfound Power, but they decided to change it to Damage Plan, and then Newfound Power became the name of their uh, debut album. So that album came out in February tenth on February tenth, uh, two thousand and four. Obviously, it's not going to match the commercial success of Pantera, but it does fine. Like it debuts at number thirty eight on Billboard and sells about like under 200,000 copies. So it's like, whatever. It's not going to be Pantera, but they're like on their way to create they this. They probably still have like a fan, a solid yeah, fan Yeah, it's definitely... They're probably um, not going to get any new fans, but they have... No. So they go on a tour called the Devastation Across the Nation Tour, and it's kind of to rebuild this fan base and let people know like, hey, we're still out here. And they play like really small nightclubs, kind of like to get like sort of intimate settings to kind of maybe build their fan base. And they like get local bands to open for them to kind of bring in new people and help those bands out. 
whatever. It's like a labor of love. Like they're not making money on this. Um, so it's like to kind of maybe meet new fans, but also to kind of like reach out to their old Pantera fans and sort of whatever, bring them along. What are they called? Damaged goods? Damage plan. Oh, okay. (laughs) That's That's our band. (laughs) (laughs) Now, one of those fans who was devastated by the breakup was a man named Nathan Gale. So I'm going to get into his backstory a bit. Nathan Gale was born on September 11th, 1979 in Marysville, Ohio. He like grows up a pretty normal life, nothing spectacular. He goes on to go to like vocational school. He studies construction and electrical work. After he graduates, he develops a drug addiction and starts working at minimum wage jobs. During this time, he lives with his mother, Mary Clark, and he starts making complaints to her that he feels like he's being watched. She kind of attributes that to his drug use at the time. Um, he does have a violent altercation with her at some point, and she kicks him out of the house, and at that point, he becomes homeless. Um, she does let him return, though, after he agrees to go to drug rehab. Now, in February 2002, he enlists in the Marine Corps. So his mom is really proud. Like To her, this is like a sign that he's really made a recovery. Uh, He's joined the Marines. He's gone through rehab. And he seems to have successfully recovered from those drug addictions. As a Christmas present in 2002, she buys him a gun. Now, he gets stationed in North Carolina until October of 2003, at which point he's discharged. A spokesman for the Marine, they can't really tell us why he was discharged discharge, but he um, will eventually go on to say, like the mom will go on to say that he had been discharged due to um, a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia, but there's no official diagnosis of this. Now, after he's discharged, the Department of Veteran Affairs do get a job for him working as a mechanic. His um, employer will later recall that Gail also told, I'm sorry, Nathan also told him he was schizophrenic. So According to this guy, I'm according to the mom, she doesn't think he was ever taking medications for this. And when he's um, given a, what is it called? A toxicology report. Beauty should be good for you. And that's why we're excited to tell you about Beauty Counter. Beauty Counter is a clean makeup and skincare brand that started in 2013, disrupting the beauty industry by shedding a light on the need for stronger ingredient regulations in the personal care products that we use daily. Today, Beauty Counter is the leading clean beauty brand creating innovative and high-performing products that are safer and cleaner than even their like-minded competitors. So what do we mean by clean? Over 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in Beauty Counter's formulations. They call this their never list. You can learn more at beautycounter.com, where you're also going to want to check out their incredible products. Best of all, if you're a new customer and you order through March 15th, you'll get free shipping on your order of $100 or more when you use the code HOLLYWOOD. Once again, to get free shipping on your order of $100 or more, go to beautycounter.com and use the code HOLLYWOOD. As most of us have found out the hard way, getting into debt is easy, getting out of it is hard, especially if your credit score isn't great. Thankfully, now there's Upstart.com, the revolutionary lending platform that knows you're more than just your credit score and offers smarter interest rates to help you pay off high-interest credit card debt. I know firsthand that there's nothing more frustrating than trying to pay something down and your payments are pretty much just paying off the interest. Upstart goes beyond the traditional credit score when assessing your credit worthiness. 
Upstart believes you're more than just your credit score. They believe in you. The best part? Once the loan is approved and accepted, most people get their funds the very next business day. Over 400,000 people have used Upstart to pay off credit cards or meet their financial goals. So free yourself from the burden of high-interest credit card debt by consolidating everything into one monthly payment with Upstart. See why Upstart is top-ranked in their category with a 4.9 out of 5 rating on Trustpilot and hurry to upstart.com slash Hollywood to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes a few minutes. That's upstart.com slash Hollywood. Done on him. Yeah. There's no evidence. There's no drugs in his that system he ever of any took, kind. But yeah. he had mentioned it to a coworker. I'm he schizophrenic. Had, yeah. So he's like a big guy. He's six foot three, over 250 pounds, and he actually plays um, football, like a semi-professional Lima Thunder football team. So it's like a, I don't know quite what that is, but, uh, and according to people he played with, he would listen to Pantera before games to prepare himself psychologically. Like that was his like build up music. Um, He had been a fan of the band since high school and he was really fixated on the band after their separation in 2003, especially. A former friend of his said that uh, Nathan once requested to practice songs, which he claimed to have written with, um, this guy's name is Dave Johnson, his band. So he would want to like play Pantera songs and he would try to claim that he actually wrote these songs and that the band stole them from him and he was planning on suing that. Yeah. So, um... Yeah, he also would claim to this guy that Pantera were attempting to steal his identity. Um, Another former friend of his said that he was obsessed with Pantera, and people started distancing himself themselves from Gail and Nathan at this point um, because he just had all this strange and erratic behavior, including he used to like pretend he was carrying a dog and interacting with it. Now he also had a criminal record and was like definitely known to local police. None of his crimes were violent, but it was like a lot of stuff. Uh, Criminal trespassing, sleeping in a public park, like things like that. He had um, stolen property from a construction company that he worked for, driving on a suspended license. Um, One that stood out to me was he was arrested for skateboarding at a Kmart. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That just was like, that's who I would have dated. Yeah. (laughs) Someone when, I, who, when I was like 16. Someone who got busted look. for skate-marting at a Kmart. What a bad boy. Wow. Did you see that whatever? <laughs> Alley-oop? I don't even know anymore. I used to be cooler. So he eventually, uh, like as I said, gets a job working as a construction worker towards the end of 2004. Like I think he was a mechanic and then he moves over to that. And he lives in this apartment alone now in Marysville, Ohio. On April 5th, 2004, Nathan uh, actually runs onto stage during a damage plan, damage plan performance at Bogarts in Cincinnati, Ohio. He is stopped by the venue's security before reaching the band members. He refuses to leave the stage and topples over a lighting rig. The security guards like basically drag him out of the nightclub. He causes $2,000 worth of damage. Damage plan, <clears throat> damage plan lead vocalist Patrick Lockman jokes about the inter- inter- incident later during that performance and the band eventually uh, decides to not press charges as they don't want to return to uh, Cincinnati for the court hearings. So he kind of just gets away with that. Uh, On December 8th, 2004, Damage Plan is performing at the Alrosa Villa nightclub in Columbus, Ohio. This is a small family owned venue that has been around basically forever. It's just one of those local old school rock type venues. 
Nathan is seen hanging around the parking lot backstage as the opening bands play. According to um, a manager of the place, he he described Nathan as wearing thick glasses and a Columbus Blue Jackets hockey jersey over a hooded sweatshirt. A fan who's also backstage, like kind of loitering or whatever, asked him why he's back there and not watching the show. Nathan says, I don't want to see no local shitty bands. He's like, you can at least stay inside and, go, and stay warm. And Nathan says, no, man, I'm going to wait for damage plan. Now, this venue holds about 600 people, but only 250 people were there that night. So it's like not that crowded inside uh, at all. The club manager, whose name is Rick Cotella, he kind of sees Nathan hanging about backstage and I mean, sorry, in the back parking lot and thinks he's just kind of like a hanger on who doesn't have a ticket, like can't afford a ticket. So he's kind of bugging, um, bugging other band members and stuff who are kind of walking back and forth to the, uh, the rear entrance of the building. And then this manager eventually has, uh, someone go over to him and tell him he has to leave the premises. Damage plan finally takes the stage and and Nathan jumps a six foot high fence and rushes into the club through a side door. He walks past like, you know, there's pool tables, a bar, a sound point, point, um, sound booth. And he finally reaches the left side of the stage. People are who are witnessing this. Uh, they see this guy who has a shaved head. They think he's going up on stage to do like a stage dive or something. Um, this is about 90 seconds into their first song of the set. Uh, they're playing their new, uh, single newfound power. Um, a witness at the club whose name is Billy Payne, he was also a singer for one of the um, opening bands called Volume Dealer. He sees like Nathan enter the club. He said he looked really determined. He was on a mission. He looked angry. He was walking like he was going to a battle. So at this point, Nathan is on stage and he takes out a Beretta 9mm handgun, the one his mom bought him for a Christmas present, and heads straight for a dime bag. Um, the bass player for Volume Dealer named Joe Dameron thought that uh, he heard Nathan shout something about Pantera, but he wasn't sure because the feedback was kind of like fucked up and he didn't know exactly what he said. He just saw his mouth open and, and started yelling something. Nathan walks right up to Dimebag, who's literally headbanging, like his hair is in his face. So he's like in this zone of right. like headbanging and doesn't even fucking see this guy approaching him. Um, someone who was watching said he was just doing his thing. Uh, he really was into it. So he was completely blindsided when uh, Nathan walked up to him, puts the gun directly towards his head and shoots five times <gasps> at point blank range. Dimebag is shot once in the right cheek, left ear, back of the head and right hand. Some of the attendees initially think that this incident is like part of the show. Like right. they're like, oh, this is like a hoax or like whatever. People are literally pumping their fists thinking it's like, shit, this is badass. Like, which kind of reminded me of um, the Great White Fire where, right. where the explosions happened. But people thought the, that it was actually like the bigger the flames got, they thought it was like all under control and didn't realize right away like that, that it was it like was, out of control. Like right. The, the pyrotechnics. I mean, that makes so much sense to me. I always think about incidents like that where something happens, like a horrible incident happens during a performance and your brain sort of just is like, oh, this must be part of the performance. Yeah, you're not prepared. Yeah, so people don't realize right away. Um, the the manager I mentioned before is like tending bar now. He thought like firecrackers had gone off. Other people thought a speaker had popped or a cap gun went off. So the bartender literally just keeps pouring drinks as this initially starts. Um, 
eventually the music does stop. Like the drummer, Vinny, uh, Daryl's brother, like stands up and stops playing. His guitar, Daryl's guitar, starts having like this huge high shriek like <sighs> um, feedback happening because I don't know, I'm sure it, he collapses. And then, you know, when you like have something face the amp, yeah. like, do you know what I mean? And of it course. makes that horrible noise, which is like chilling to yeah. imagine. So at this point, it's like, oh, fuck, and pandemonium kind of breaks out. A security guard tackles Nathan, and he continues shooting into the crowd. Oh, my God. A bullet grazes the arm of the other band, Roadie Travis Burnett from uh, Volume Dealer. The other, which, what, the band's Roadie? Yeah, Volume Dealer's Roadie Travis Burnett. Um, He basically, like, also runs toward the stage to try to disarm Nathan, He's quoted as saying, I asked him, dude, what the fuck are you doing? And he was like, get out of here, get away. As I went to grab him, he shot at me. The bullet went through my shirt and I didn't even feel it. Um, The band's head of security, damage plans head of security, Jeffrey Mayhem Thompson tackles Nathan and he gets fatally shot in the struggle. (gasps) Another fan who was at the show named Nathan Bray is also shot as he attempts to aid uh, Abbott, like Dimebag and this guy, uh, Jeffrey Mayhem Thompson. Um, Aaron Hawk, who's an employee of the venue, um, tries to disarm Nathan and he, while he's reloading and also gets shot. At this point, Dimebag is laying on the stage, literally bleeding to death. Um, fans are like fleeing out of the um, venue. One concert goer named Mindy Reese is a registered nurse and she actually rushes forward. She says, I said, fuck this. I'm a nurse. He needs help. She did chest compressions for 15 to 20 minutes while they were waiting for the paramedics to come. She said, I kept saying, Dimebag, come on, come on, please stay with me. By the time the paramedics arrive, uh, he's pretty much near death. Damage Plan's drum technician, John Cat Brooks, also attempts to to subdue Nathan, um, and he's shot twice in the leg and then taken hostage. So at this point, obviously, the police have been called. So a police officer named James Niggemeyer enters, and um, he basically sees... Um, Nathan and this guy he's holding hostage behind like a huge amp that they're sort of, he's holding him there with a gun to his head. Um, at some point he like moves to kind of like move behind the, the amp. And, um, this officer has like a clear shot at this point. So from 20 feet, feet away, he fires once killing Nathan instantly with one shot to the head. And like, people are literally screaming like you blew his fucking, <laughs> like his head is literally like he exploded gone. His like, head. He fucking destroyed his head with this one rifle shot to the head. And people are like fucking flipping out at this point. People are like, they're still concert goers. Yeah. They're still kind of still- like stragglers i guess like i can imagine you want to run but then you're like what the fuck like you're right. paralyzed also like yeah. staying there and i think it's just happening fast i have yeah right, so it's right. like it's a scene now once this guy is taken out like they find that he had half full magazine in his in his gun and still another 30 rounds of ammunition on his person so this could have been like a real fucking disaster. I mean, much worse than it was, but it was already, it's pretty fucked up already. Dimebag is pronounced dead at the scene. He's age 38. Thompson, 40, and Hulk, 29, are also pronounced dead at the scene. Bray, who was 23 years old, was declared dead when he was brought to the hospital at 11.10 p.m. Um, The two other people who got shot, Paluski and Brooks, um, were brought to the hospital. They recovered from their injuries. Um, yeah, and then Travis Burnett is another person he got shot, and he pretty much wasn't even hospitalized. It was just a minor wound. But four people died 
uh, that night wow. from this guy. Uh, you know, Vinny, the brother, went. He like left the venue once he saw what happened at Dimebag and went to his tour bus and just literally like hunkered into his bunk and was crying like he couldn't leave his um, bunk. Um, according to the volume dealer singer Billy Payne, he said Damage Plan loved us. They told us to stay after sh- the show. They were going to talk to us and have drinks with us. It was a local band's dream coming true, but it turned into a nightmare. So these are like, by all accounts, really good guys who just this fucking horrible thing happened to them at this show. Um, The police eventually go to this guy, Nathan Gale's apartments, and they find handwritten notes that, that are in there. And one of the notes stated, you'll see, come alive. I'll take your life and make it mine. This is my life. I'm gone. Get me. So he left like a pretty chilling note. Now, Vinny eventually in this interview I read talks about his last moment with uh, Daryl. So he says, the last thing that really matters to me is the last thing we said to each other before we went on stage. We were warming up on the side of the stage like we always did, and we were both really excited. We only had two shows left, and we were going to be home for Christmas to begin work on our second record. Our code word to let it all hang out and have a good time was Van Halen, and that's the last two words we ever said to each other. I said Van Halen, and he said Van Halen, and we high-fived each other and went on, on the deck to do our thing. A minute and a half later, I'd never see him again. That's so sad. That's really sad. <laughs> Van Halen. That's like his final words were Van Halen, which seems like sad, but very fitting. Now, obviously, why did this happen? Like that's people's big questions. So initial reports, like that guy had said he thought that Nathan had shouted, you broke up Pantera, or this is for breaking up Pantera before he shot Dimebag. But these claims were never able to be corroborated really because it was just too much chaos going on and no one was really able to hear things is there video of this event yes you can watch this my god that's i was gonna say it this is all like there's a ton of pictures and i think there is a video although i didn't watch it but you can see everything like (gasps) he's literally on stage like with his arm out with a gun shooting dime bag like there are yeah so if you want to see it you can. There's like a ton of pictures. And pr- um, pl- probably please don't post it in our Facebook group. Yeah. Because people... I wouldn't say they're particularly gruesome, but it's definitely fucked up. Like... Yeah. Yeah. I um, just don't want to see someone's head get blown And they're off. kind of... No, you don't see... There's nothing... I didn't see anything like that. It could exist. But it's like... Uh, it's very grainy. So you can tell it's from some video. Well, it, it was 2004. Yeah. So it's like whatever. A flip phone video maybe. Like right. it wasn't professional video. Um but yeah, if you're interested, it's easy to find. Like you just Google it basically. <laughs> like it's not like hard to get to. So yeah. So people, you know, said that that could have been the reason. There was also an interview with Metal Hammer that Phil Anselmo did for, and was published shortly before the shooting happened. That was listed as a possible motivation. He basically slams Dimebag in this interview. And at some point he says that Dimebag deserves to be beaten severely uh, in the interview. Like it was such a bad interview that when Vinny heard about it, he had to, he actually requested to hear the audio transcript because he couldn't believe how awful it was Right to like confirm that it was real. Uh, and it was real. Like he definitely slams Dimebag in that interview. Um, but police didn't find any evidence to corroborate that that's why Nathan did any of this. Uh, but he obviously had an obsession with the band. So who knows, right? Some months um, before D- uh, Daryl was was killed, 
he had uh, heard that Eddie Van Halen was putting, releasing like a limited edition series of his guitars, like that had like that. I don't know if you remember this. Like he used to have these guitars that had like a tape striping on them. Like he would do this random tape striping and then, and then color them. And one of the famous ones was like called the Bumblebee. So it's like black and like yellow stripes on it. So that was like an iconic, like Eddie Van Halen. He had all these custom like guitars that he did. So he was going to start releasing him and Dimebag, like huge Van Halen fan wanted to get one of these and kind of was asking, Kay, can I get like one before they're released and sold out? Like put my name on the list or whatever. Now, uh, Eddie of course was like, great, that's great. I'm going to give you one as a present. Um, so before they could meet to do this, Daryl is obviously murdered and, uh, Eddie tells the story at his funeral. Then out of like nowhere, he surprises everyone. He brings out the black and yellow stripe tape stripe guitar that was on the back cover of Van Halen two and puts it in Daryl's casket to be buried with him. If you don't think that's iconic enough, please know that Daryl is also buried in a kiss casket. <laughs> which Gene Simmons donates to him also as like, whatever, a gift. Now he gets buried, uh, next to his mother in Arlington, Texas. Um, there's also like, I couldn't find like an article on this, but I saw several places that there was some like, sort of like kerfuffles at the, um, at the funeral. Some of his family was escorted out. Some people say it was because they wanted to make room for more distinguished guests. So that kind of seems like a little bit bitter. Like maybe that wasn't really the reason. I have no idea. Other people say they left because they didn't like the extreme profanity and, and vulgar language that the speakers were were using. <laughs> I mean, I can't even imagine. Like they had like every metal god at this funeral, like giving these fucking like literally like doing shots and like drinking from bottles of whiskey on stage. If I was like a metalhead, that's what I would want at my funeral. I mean, it was like a very fucking metal funeral, right? Like, for sure, I can picture it. Now, the cop who took out this guy, he obviously has to go through some grand jury like evaluation of his response. I mean, it's a clear case that he did what he was supposed to do for once. Like, uh, So he's like cleared of all wrongdoing, and he's in fact praised for his actions. Um, Nathan, Nathan Gale's mom actually thanks him and gives him credit saying that no one will ever know how many lives he actually saved by taking out her son. He eventually does retire because he does suffer um, PTSD from the incident, though. Uh, But yeah. So obviously the shooting also leads to a large debate about security at music venues. Scott Ian of Anthrax says, to me, everything changed after Dimebag was killed. The stage became off limits for everyone but musicians. I don't give a fuck how much fun you're having. Stay the fuck off the stage. Um, Other people are kind of concerned because a lot of these metal bands play these small venues. Right. Like they're not doing stadium tours anymore, most of these guys. Yeah. So they're at these small venues who just don't have the security, like, you know, wherewithal that a big stadium might have. And they don't necessarily all have their own detailed security staff as well. So it really becomes like um, a thing for these like sort of metal bands at the same level uh, doing these small clubs. When Christina Grimey is murdered in 2016 in like a similar circumstance, Pantera uses that to like really call on promoters and venue owners to improve security for all artists. So it's definitely something that they still kind of, you know, go for. Okay. So wrapping it up with a few more stories about what happened to the band members afterwards. Now, Phil, this guy's fucked up. There is a um, tribute concert for uh, Dimebag. It's called the Dime Bash. 
uh, and somehow Phil manages to get on the bill. He ends the show, the tribute show, by giving a Nazi salute and screaming <gasps> the words white power to the crowd. No. Yeah. So obviously, 2016, there's much better cell phone <laughs> camera uh, recording this incident. Wait, this is a 2016 show? 2016 show, yeah. That they're doing a tribute to Dimebag. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. So this gets captured on cell phone camera and post, is posted to YouTube. He like denies, and he claims he is joking oh, about drinking white wine, which is an obvious fucking lie. Shut the fuck um, up. But yeah, he continues. So he gets severe online backlash from the metal community, which is good. Um, he keeps trying to like re, you know, go back and like issues um, apologies. Uh, he says it was ugly, it was uncalled for, and anybody who knows me and my true nature knows that I don't believe any of that. I'm a thousand percent apologetic to anyone who took offense to what I said, because you should have taken offense to what I said. He goes on to a serious XM radio show. And claims that he's being taunted now by two or three hecklers during his shows. Um, so he kind of goes off on these hecklers, but it's like he's the one. Um, he kind of loses his patience on this show and says, when people start screaming racist over and over and over again at me, what I did was show them exactly what the ugliest possible thing I could think of at the time was. First of all, you dumbass. Yeah. So he basically starts blaming people being, it's like the person who's like, well, now I'm going to be racist. Right. <laughs> I'll show you. Or right. like the boyfriend who's like, if you keep accusing me of cheating, I'm going to cheat. Like, yeah, it's like, no. You fucking dumbass. A lot of times people don't do that. <laughs> That's also an option. Um, but he kind of like, continues going down this road where it's like, yeah, he starts criticizing political correctness, racism, and hip-hop. Um, he criticizes... he says that hip-hop is racist? Yeah. Oh, against white against people? Against white people, I guess. Fucking he criticizes loser. the slogan, Stop Black on Black Crime, as racist as well. Um, he says it doesn't discourage crime against white people. Um, so he starts sort of like challenging the white pride as being taboo. Like, why can't you have white pride too? Like, so he starts doing all the bullshit. Does he go on Joe Rogan's podcast? <laughs> I don't have any record of that, but maybe. Um, he does like, he does try to go back on it saying like, oh, I've changed my opinion or I have a different understanding of things now, but it's basically because he's getting all this backlash. It's so funny. He's such an irritating person. Like, well, I hate him. He's like the type of, he's like that guy or person, because like women are, women can be like this too, obviously, where they, they're like, I'm, what I'm saying is so edgy. I didn't go too much into him because he's honestly the type of person I find super fucking irritating. He's a, a nightmare. Uh, so yeah, I just thought I would comment on I don't that know since anything, it was related to I don't know anything about him except for this and I... I've but you know exactly decided. who this guy I know, is. I know this type of person, <laughs> and they just fucking suck. Just the worst. Yeah. So, uh, another sad news on June twenty second, twenty eighteen, Vinny dies in Las Vegas at the age of fifty four. He had a heart disease, so it was just a heart attack, like a natural death, um, and that's pretty sad. Uh, he died five days after performing at the Vinyl at Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. Um, and he also was born, um, buried next to his mom, Carolyn and his brother, Daryl in a kiss casket. Aww. So the brothers are both in kiss caskets, which is like sweet, but also sad, <laughs> like just like sad, like that they're, well, they were just like, that was like their thing from the beginning, this yeah. kiss. And now they're both like, that's cute. Yeah. So that's that. Now, one last thing I want to bring up is that. 
a lot was made at the time of the fact that this happened on the anniversary, the 24th anniversary of John Lennon's murder, December 8th. Oh. So see, people initially thought there was some connection to that, but I think it was just random. It just happened to be yeah. uh, the whatever. So I, I did like poke around a little though into <laughs> some of the Reddit conspiracy boards. And I found one that was so interesting. And then the fucking YouTube video had been taken down. And then I did so many searches. My searches looked like a fucking like middle-aged dad because it was like all Eagles related. <laughs> why was it Eagles I'll related? I'll tell you why, Rachel. Because I saw a post on Reddit where someone said, Dime bags and John Lennon's deaths were per, were foreshadowed in Hotel California. Stop it. Yes. Stop it. Yes. So I, of course, was like, fuck yes. Like, I will do it like a deep dive on a fucking Eagles conspiracy. This is like right up my alley. Dude. So I was like, the, like the crushing blow when that YouTube video was taken down. And then I kept searching and searching and searching. Like, for like wait, there was a YouTube video of someone like mapping Someone out. was like showing like in the, I don't know if it was like a backwards... <laughs> If it was like double dime bag, John, <laughs> or what happened? Like, I don't know what, I don't know anything because I couldn't find any more information except for that one post that linked to the video. Dude. Literally the worst thing that can happen on the internet is to find something that leads nowhere and you need more information. So I did search and look. The only thing I can possibly, the only thing I was able to discover is that Hotel California was released on December 8th, the same oh. day. So I'm feeling like it might have something to do with that. I have no idea. But uh, there are a lot of like things you can look up where it's like the similarities between John Lennon and Dimebag. Guess what? What? They're very vague. <laughs> They're very vague. <laughs> They're very vague. And it's like, it's one of those things that's like, yeah, you can have those similarities, but I could make a list of 3,000 things <laughs> on how they were different. <laughs> right. And you could also be like, well, and Ronald Reagan too. Right. So it's his, definitely, like, with, any, there's one with like JFK and Lincoln aren't there something like they both have three initials or like whatever that thing on that thing that goes around on facebook that like the the boomers always repost that's like the similarities between the assassinations of jfk and the assassination of lincoln and it's like they were both presidents (laughs) yeah no so the list the list i would see are very i was like gonna read them but then i was like these are too boring to even read out loud like it, it was like they're like both born, you know, whatever. Like it they was were just, both born. They both a- played guitar. Like, it was like literally things like that. I was like, isn't there one funny one right. that I can mention? But no, no. So the only interesting thing is this Eagle song, but that led nowhere. And I'm deeply depressed about it because okay. I would love to, I would love to have heard some lame ass audio. I love listening to those things where they play it bas- backwards and they're like, see, listen right here. <laughs> It's it's like whatever, like something like yeah. Uh, they're always it's kind of like hearing the ghost recordings. I never want to hear backwards <laughs> music. It's too scary. It is kind of scary. I don't like. And it. sometimes I can hear it, but I don't know if it means anything. No, I just don't. The sound of it, just like sonically, it's very scary to me. Well, it's one of those things too, where I was like, how do you even figure out how to do that? To have something said when right. it's playing backwards. Like, do you right. have to reverse engineer it? Like, I don't even know how it would be don't, done. You know what? Don't explain this to us. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. Don't even, I don't even I'm want, a music nerd now. No, I don't know. I don't want you to explain it. I don't want someone on our Facebook page to explain it. I hate this conversation. I'm scared right now. Holy shit. <laughs> Um, okay, but that's that's everything. Wow. I mean, obviously I knew who this guy was. But I was never, I never listened to Pantera. I didn't either. And I honestly didn't know, like, I didn't know the story. Actually, that was one of the things on the list. They're 
Both of their band names were Twist on an animal name. <laughs> Wait, that was? That was on the list. The Beatles. And- the Beatles I was is- going to ask you, what the fuck is a Pantera? I think it's supposedly a twist on Panther. I, I don't know. Though. That's a stretch. Yeah, I don't really know. That's Maybe a stretch. it just sounds bad. It- they just wanted to use Pantora. Be- <laughs> I'm telling you, that's a stretch because I had to ask you, what is a Pantera? I think it's just a made up word. Yeah, I do too. I, I meant to look it up. Uh, and I just ran out of time. Something, yeah, so I'm sure someone someone's yelling us. at us someone right now. Totally, at their literally phone. yelling and at me. And you know what? We're we're idiots. We never claim not to be. We, that's the thing is, whenever <laughs> people are like these two fucking idiots, like yeah, we, as if they're as if we're selling ourselves as scholars. Yeah, yeah. Come on, come on. Um, yeah, cool. We'll post some pics. Yeah, we'll post Time pictures. Uh, go uh, follow us on Instagram, Hollywood Crime Scene. Yeah. Uh, That's that. That's that. All right. Bye.